Okay, Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for ages, for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight and the opportunity that we get to study your word and to close out uh, the, the book of Romans. I pray that as we uh, discuss it and, and talk about it both here and in our small groups, that you would be glorified as we grow deeper in our understanding of you. Thank you for who you are and, and all you have done and, and the fact that you have revealed this to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the entire book of Romans might as well be a gigantic tapestry when it comes to justification, salvation, everything as regards the gospel. Do you guys know what a tapestry is? It's a big work of art, typically on fabric. Um, and with, with this book, it is dense, it is long, as we have seen. Uh, I've, we've been in it since January. This is 27 weeks, I think, in Romans. And uh, people that I've told that to have said we flew through Romans. So that'll give you a picture as to how long this book really is. But it, because it's so long, it is easy for us to get stuck into the details and to miss the overall overarching main thing, main theme as far as the book of Romans goes. It's easy to lose the forest for the trees. It's easy to forget that there's the, it's an entire piece and not just little pieces as we've di tackled different themes, different verses, and especially with the style of preaching that we have at our church, what's known as expository preaching, where we go verse by verse. It's easy to get stuck on the small details, which isn't wrong. But if we're missing the overall point, the main theme of Romans, then we've missed it. The main theme of Romans is that the main goal of our salvation, our sanctification, our unification as the church, our unification with God through the gospel is not a change in behavior. It's not even our salvation. The main goal, the main purpose of justification, salvation is bringing glory to God. That is our main focus in life. As Christians, our primary focus is bringing glory to God. And when God is glorified, then that brings us the most joy. And that's the main theme of, of these three verses as Paul closes out this entire book. He really summarizes it in three verses. So we'll, three points that we have tonight are one, God strengthens us by the gospel. Then we are sent out with the gospel. That's point two. And finally, God is glorified by those he has changed through the gospel. So let's look back at verse 25. God strengthens us by the gospel. As I said, Paul, as is really obvious, I mean, look at all the blank space after verse 27. Paul is closing out his, his letter to the Romans. He's finishing it up. He's told them that he wants to come see them and he's wrapping it up. And in verse 25, he reminds us of where our focus should be this whole time. Now to him. And those three words, Paul 
if, if you can imagine that we're zoomed in on, in these last chapters, the practical side of theology, how we live out our theology in the day-to-day, we've been zoomed in on that, and Paul suddenly zooms us back out to look at the book as a whole. He says, now to him. The focus shifts back to God. It zooms back out. And, and we really are stepping back and looking at this as a whole. That's what we should be doing. God's glory is the focus here, as I've already said. Salvation is important. It is essential for us, obviously. It, shapes, it reshapes all of who we are. But God's glory is the primary focus. So Paul reminds us of that, really. So he says, now to him, now to God, who is able to strengthen you. That's really the goal of Paul's letter here. That he wanted to strengthen, to encourage, to remind the, the Roman church of all that the gospel entails, to tell them that he is coming. And if we look back at Romans 1.11, very, at the very beginning, it says, For I long to see you, Paul talking to the Romans, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul wanted to strengthen this church. There are, church, there, there are Christians in a community that they're really isolated from. They needed encouragement. They needed strengthening that can only come through the gospel. And he's hopeful that this would do it. Especially when he visits, he's hopeful that he can, he can be part of strengthening them. But there is some level of uncertainty there. But when we look at this verse, at the very end, at the bookend of this book, he says that God is able to strengthen them. It's not Paul. It is God, and there is certainty in the fact that God can strengthen them. He wants to do this, in per- or Paul wants to partake in this in person, but he, for now he has to settle with this le- letter. And Paul simply knows that he is the instrument that God is using to strengthen them. That he, it's not because of Paul's ability, because of his logic, because of his, uh, his piety, because of his commitment to Christ, that they're strengthened. It's nothing on Paul's own ability that strengthens this church. But it's God through his word who is strengthening this church. Paul is simply the instrument, the one, the tool that God is using to encourage his people. And that's how we should view ourselves as it regards the kingdom of God. Every single one of us is replaceable. The church has been going on for centuries and centuries, and the great heroes of the faith have died off and joined God in glory, and they've been replaced, and the church has continued on. Our church, even Country Oaks, has been through multiple lead pastors, and our church has continued on. I'm not the first youth pastor at this church. Nathan was before me and there was someone before him. The church continues on. God's kingdom continues on because every single one of us is replaceable. And when we have that mindset, that that should be an encouragement to us. That God will use us. And that all the work that we have done is not a waste. It's not like in Ecclesiastes where where Solomon just points out that the work of man is just toil that one day someone else will inherit. When we work selfishly, that's true. But when we work for the kingdom, 
Jesus tells us that we are building up heavenly treasures, that our work is worthwhile and it's not a waste because God will use someone else to continue it, or he will end it in his timing, which is perfect. We are not essential to the kingdom. We are tools that can and will be replaced, and that is a good thing because it shows God's sovereignty. It shows his goodness. It shows his strength that even our own deaths can't, can't be or aren't obstacles to the growth of the kingdom. So how does God strengthen them, though? Back to the text. So he says that God is able to strengthen them according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. Paul is describing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in three ways. He describes it as his gospel. It's not that he's separating out, like there's Paul's gospel and Peter's gospel, James and John. No, this is all the same gospel. The gospel that has been entrusted to Paul. The gospel that has been entrusted to the apostles, that's been entrusted to us to spread and to proclaim. So that's, that's the first description. It is Paul's gospel. In Galatians 1, 8 to 9, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, anyone, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Like I said, Paul is not separating out a Pauline gospel. It's the same as the rest of the apostles, the same as the rest of scripture. What he's doing is he is saying the gospel that he is an apostle of, a messenger of, that it is a gospel that is not changed, it remains the same. And as we have seen throughout this book, it is the pure, unaltered, God-given message of reconciliation and peace and mercy. That man has sinned, disobeyed, and rejected a holy God who created everything and has made himself known to all people, and yet we still reject him, and that punishment for that sin is death. But God, in his mercy and kindness, offers us salvation through, uh, or salvation from the punishment that we deserve by offering us the free gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That when we put our faith in the work that Jesus done, that he was born, uh, that he's born fully God and fully man, born as a human baby, lived a perfectly sin, sinless, righteous life, and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. That when we put our faith in that work, that he was resurrected three days later and ascended to the right hand of God, when we put our faith that what he has done is enough, is sufficient for our salvation, that he is now our Lord and Savior, then we are justified in the eyes of God. That we are seen as Jesus is seen, righteous and holy and adopted into the family of God. Something that none of us deserve. That's the gospel of Paul. That's, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the third description or the second description that we get that it is the preaching of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean the preaching that Jesus did, which is, again, fits in with the gospel, but it is the proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And finally, the third description is that it's according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. 
That's a reminder that the gospel isn't plan B, C, D, or E, all the way to Z. No, the gospel is God's plan. That it was before the foundations of the earth that he created this plan for the salvation of his people. That it is... It has been the plan from eternity past, and it will be the plan for eternity forevermore. And it is this gospel that points us directly to the glory of God. God is the main character in the gospel, not us. God is the one who gets the glory. God is the one who is the focus. It is this gospel that was a mystery that was once hidden, that in Genesis 3, after the fall, after man sinned against God, God promised that the offspring of Adam and Eve would crush the head of the serpent. How that all worked was a mystery that's been revealed to us now. It's that mystery that Abraham put his faith in. It's that mystery that the Old Testament saints trusted would one day make sense. It's that mystery that New Testament believers have looked back on and held fast to. And it's the same mystery that we hold to today. It is this gospel that strengthens us, that encourages us, that pushes us to righteousness. So that's the application. The first application for this passage is that we are to be strengthened by the gospel. So what does that mean? How are we strengthened by the gospel? Well, if you haven't put in your, your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for your sins, who showed his power over sin and death, if you have not put your faith in him, then you are as weak as dry bones. You are dead in your sin and your trespasses. You are a corpse, a spiritual corpse before God. And it is the only way that you are strengthened is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. God is offering you new life through his son, and that is the ultimate strengthening. That is the foundation for everything that we believe. That faith in Jesus Christ gives us new life. If you have not done that, then you can't be strengthened by the gospel until you put your faith in it. But if you are a believer, we are strengthened by the gospel as we look back on on the entirety of scripture, but as we're closing out Romans, on the entirety of Romans, and the gospel is our our encouragement in the midst of trial. We saw that in Romans 8. It it strengthens us to fight sin, Romans 7. It assures us of our salvation, chapter 9. It unites us as, as God's people despite our differences, that's Romans 11. It changes our hearts for obedience and righteousness, that's really the rest of the book. The gospel strengthens us by pushing us to Christ-likeness. The gospel isn't just relevant for unbelievers, but the message of the gospel is necessary daily, hourly for believers. It is by his word, by his offering of salvation and the reminder of that, that there's nothing that we did, but it was God who stepped into our lives that we are strengthened and equipped that we hold fast to that. And the way we do that is by being in God's word. I, can't, I always go back to Psalm 1 because it's such a great picture of the importance of God's word in our life. But in Psalm 1, God tells us that, that the man who plants himself by God's word is like a, street, a tree that is planted by a river intentionally. And trees are strong. 
I mean, we all know that. If you went and tried to push over that tree, you mean you can climb on trees. They are strong, and when we plant ourselves by God's word, we are strong in the Lord. That's that image that we get. So if we plant ourselves in God's word, fully trusting in him, then we will be strengthened. It's that simple. You depend on God. And that spurs us on to what Paul calls the obedience of faith. That brings us to our second point, that we are sent out with the gospel. Romans 16, 26. But, now, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. I mean, we touch, I touched on this, but the mystery of the gospel was in the Old Testament writings. It's now been revealed and only upon Jesus' ascension was it, it's, was it revealed in its fullest. In Luke 24, 26 to 27, it says, and, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, as he's walking on the road to Emmaus with his a couple of his disciples, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus was spending his last days before he ascended into heaven, he spent it teaching his disciples, the apostles, how the Old Testament pointed to him. In Acts 1, 2-3, it says, He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He tells us that in Matthew 5, that he fulfills the law and the prophets. doesn't come to abolish, abolish them but to fulfill them. The Old Testament points us to Jesus as the suffering servant, the offspring that crushes the head of the serpent, the one who has saved us and will be victorious over sin and death and evil. And this mystery, this secret, it's no longer a mystery or a secret. When scripture talks about something as a mystery, it's something that's already been made known. The gospel has been fully revealed, sufficiently revealed to us. And the Old Testament reminds us of that. Now, there is something confusing about this verse. At the very end, uh, he says that through the prophetic writings, it's been made known to all nations. Now, you might look at that and question, well, then why would we, why would we need to send missionaries out? Why, would people need to, why have people been risking their lives if it's already been made known? What this is saying is a, a better translation might be to all the Gentiles, referring to the Gentiles that have heard the gospel, that it is spreading to all the nations. It is being made known. It's ha it has been made known to all the believing Gentiles, and it is continuing to go out. All nations have disobeyed God and are in need of the gospel so that they can be saved. That's God's heart. God wants people to be saved. In, in 2 Peter 3, 8 to 9, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is an encouragement that Peter is writing to the persecuted church. They're suffering under persecution. And what Paul said, or what Peter says to them isn't, oh, Jesus is coming soon, so just be ready, be ready. That's part of it. But he also tells them, don't be impatient. 
You might be thinking that God is acting slowly, but what you might count as slowness, God is not counting as slowness. The gospel is going out. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. He hasn't forgotten. He isn't being lazy, but he's being patient. And if it weren't for God's patience, then we might not have been brought to repentance. So we should be praying that God would continue to do a work and to to send people out because he is going to. And we should be praying to partake in that. God has been patient for thousands of years and he continues to be patient. God's heart has always been that the nations would be reached through his people. That's what he promised to to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That through the offspring of Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations will be blessed. And that comes through Jesus Christ. God told Israel in Exodus 19 that they were to be a kingdom of priests. That people would come to Israel to encounter God. Now we know that they didn't do that. But instead they started to look on other nations with contempt. And before you agree too quickly that Israel messed up, that their failures... When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Scripture tells us that we are a kingdom of priests. That we've been entrusted with the way of salvation. So when's the last time you shared with someone the way that they could be saved? God desires that all people are brought to him and saved. And that's what he's commanded us to do. He, Paul, Paul says... That through the, through the prophetic writings, the gospel has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. It is the command of God that the gospel goes out. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This command has been extended to us. Jesus gave it to his disciples, but it's been passed down to us. Romans ten fourteen to 17 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they, unbelievers, to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's a pretty clear description of the situation. How are we to expect people to be saved or even know who Christ is if we aren't telling them about him? Sure, you might think that, a, that we live in, a, in America, that people know the gospel. 
And then you remember we live in California and you hear all these things about California. And, but then you think, well, I'm into Hatchby. There's churches on every corner. How do you know that people have heard about who Jesus truly is? Because there's a lot of misconceptions out there. I mean, there's even commercials during the Super Bowl that are peddling these misconceptions. How do you know that people truly know who Jesus is? You can't be confident in that fact. I mean, we get, a, we get a picture of this with the Ethiopian who was saved in Acts. He's sitting there reading scripture and the apostle that goes to him could have just said, oh, cool, he's reading the Bible, he must be saved. No, he doesn't do that. He says, do you understand what you are reading? He didn't just assume that he knew. And that should be our, our heart as well, our mindset as well. We can't just assume that people know who Jesus is. We are now to go out and evangelize and bring the gospel to those who haven't put their faith in Christ. And that happens in two ways. One, in local evangelism. That we are in a community that we can evangelize to. I'm sure you have friends, you have family who are not believers. I know you do. Or the second way is through mission work. And if you aren't doing the first, if you aren't doing local evangelism, then how can you expect to go overseas and to, to translate scriptures and to evangelize to people who have never heard the gospel? Not doing, not doing so, not bringing the gospel to people who don't know is incredibly selfish. But most importantly, you are disobeying God. Now, there's a lot of reasons that you can come up with as to why you don't share the gospel. But all of those fall apart as soon as you are reminded of verse 20 of Matthew 18 or 28, 18 to 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have no reason to fear, no reason to question what we're called to do. Jesus is with us always. This application is clear. That is the command of God that we take the gospel out. God has revealed the way of salvation to us. And we have seen it. If you're a believer, you see it as completely true. The only way to escape hell and death and punishment. And we've put our faith in Christ. And yet we still refuse to share the gospel because we're afraid someone might reject us. Or we might get made fun of. A few weeks ago... Daniel, Pastor Daniel, was preaching and he used this illustration when he was talking about evangelism. And it's as if we were standing by the side of the road that just dropped off to a cliff to a certain death. And as people were driving by, not knowing it was happening, we're just standing there and waving at them. Oh, have a good trip. Good luck. If we aren't sharing the gospel, it is as terrible as doing that. That's a silly illustration, but we are allowing people where we are letting people go to their death for eternity because we're afraid we might get rejected. Because we don't want to be seen as one of those corny Christians. Or we don't want to offend people who think that sharing your beliefs is wrong, that everyone should believe whatever they want to believe. God has given us a clear command and it's up to us to discern our role in it. And what I mean by that isn't whether or not we should evangelize because that's clear. 
No, we need to figure out whether or not we are supposed to go overseas to be a missionary or if we are to be a good sender. It's not for every Christian to go, but it is for every Christian to consider whether or not they are called to missions. Whether or not that is your role in this command. If you aren't going, you are not off the hook. There are plenty of people that need the gospel here in Tatchby or wherever you end up, or even just simply in your friends and family. When is the last time you shared the good news of salvation with someone? When's the last time you obeyed God's command to share the gospel? So it brings us to this last point, that God is glorified by those he has changed with the gospel. Verse 26 again, but now, but has now the gospel has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. That's the purpose of the gospel, that we would be saved, our hearts changed, so that we would now have a desire to obey. Before we are saved, where we fit in with description, this description from one, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Before Christ, that's where we were. And if you aren't in Christ, that is where you are. You are suppressing the truth in your unrighteousness. But after faith, God has changed our hearts. Ezekiel 36 describes it as God cleansing us and giving us hearts of flesh that have a desire to obey. And that's why the, the epistles, these letters typically go from theology, knowledge of God, going deeper in our understanding of who he is, to loving him through our obedience. That's what Romans did. 11 chapters of theology and then a shift and a therefore do not be conformed to the, to the thinking of this world. Instead, live your life as a living sacrifice. Look, let's just look back at Romans eleven thirty three uh, to 12 too. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. That's how Paul ends his theology part. His theology immediately leads to glorification of God. And then, and then it gets practical. He says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Once we know about God, once our hearts have been changed, obedience follows. It's not that our obedience secures our salvation, but instead our obedience is a sign of fruit of our salvation. Just like a tree that has fruit on it, that's how you identify the tree. You could even argue the leaves, but the leaves are a part of the growth of the tree. It's the same for our salvation. Our works show that we have a true saving faith. God reveals knowledge about himself 
and salvation to us. And that theology, if we've put our faith in Jesus, should change the way we live our lives. If your understanding of God doesn't change the way you live, even if you could get all the answers right on a theology test, if it doesn't change the way you live, you have a weak theology. Am I on, on the surface? It might look like a strong theology. People might be impressed by the way you talk about the Bible. And, but if your heart is not changed, then you don't truly know God. Our theology will naturally produce obedience. It will naturally produce what's called doxology or praise and worship of God because of our changed hearts. And that's why we see Paul end this entire letter in verse 27 by saying, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. I mean, this ought to be our reaction to the glories of the gospel. If, our, if your reaction to the gospel is not worship of God, the more you think about it, then you don't fully understand the gospel. Paul has summed up this letter in three verses, and the natural result of it is glorification of God, is doxology. The end of the gospel is not changed behavior. He doesn't just settle with that. It's not just head knowledge of God. He doesn't settle with that. Heck, it's not even new hearts. The end goal of the gospel is the glory of God. In Ezekiel 36 22 to turn to Ezekiel 36 verse 22. This paints this clear picture of the work that God is a, that God does in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 36 verse 22. Still got pages turning. Okay. Ezekiel 36, 22 says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you claim. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again 
suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. That same truth applies to us as well. We don't, we don't get the land. We don't have to be in exile or anything like that. But what we do get is remembering the ways that we have sinned against God. Of how we acted foolishly, of how we suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. But what is God's concern when, he's, when he makes his people new, when he brings about changed hearts? It's not for their sake. It's not for our sake. It is for his own sake that he acts. It is for his name. And if our heart is not in line with that, then we need to question our theology. If your focus is not God's glory as it is his own focus, then you need to look at, the, at really the shallowness of your theology, the weakness of it. God's concern has always been his name and his glory. And when God receives the glory he is due, we receive blessings that we are promised. Just look at what he tells Israel. No famine, that they won't be stuck in exile amongst the nations, that their land will be abundant and prosperous. And this isn't some health, wealth, and prosperity garbage. No, this is promises that come with the new heavens and the new earth. That we will one day experience a life without sin and suffering and the effects of the fall. If you are in Christ. God's glory is the greatest benefit to his creation, to us. And is that your concern as well? Or do you lose, lose the forest of God's theology for the, for the trees? The forest of God's glory for the trees of the small details? Do you get distracted by the intricacies or are you reminded or do you remind yourself that all of this is for God's glory, not our own? It's not for our sake, but it is for his sake. That is the focus of Romans, the focus of our salvation, and the focus of everything that we do as believers. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and, and how you have used it to, to shape us and to change us. Thank you for those who have preached the gospel to us that we uh, believed in and you saved us because of it or by it, really. I pray as we go into our small group time that that it'd be a time of deep fellowship and learning more about you so that we could praise you all the more in truth and in love. Thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.